Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Forrest Galante. Forrest, how are you? I'm great, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. And just before we hit record, I was saying how much I enjoyed your book. I have a feeling that I'm unusual because I think most people know about you from TV and will come to the book. And I read the book first and I don't have a TV. So, you know, I feel like if you haven't read the book, there's a depth and richness to you that I haven't, like I've watched a bunch of your shows, but not all of it. And there's, um, you're this guy who's got all these amazing skills. And I feel like where it comes from is really a, a very rich tapestry of, of stories, starting from uh, growing up in Africa, which you mentioned a couple of times, and counting ants by the hundreds of thousands. And, <laughs> but I think like the really exciting stuff probably makes TV because people like to see alligators and sharks. Yeah, well, not, I thank, first of all, thank you very much. And, you know, secondly, that's why I wrote a book, right? Josh is, is not just to talk about my own sort of depthness of character, but everything you see on TV is just a highlight reel. You know, what, what we go out and shoot and do on these expeditions gets boiled down into 44 minutes of TV and you don't get to see everything. You don't get to feel what I feel and, and smell what I smell and hear what I hear. And in the book, that's that's what I attempt to do on some of these expeditions. And you know, my skill set, as as diverse as it is, it's really just the perfect storm of events that has led to having me such a unique and diverse set of skills from my background in Africa and from becoming a, a you know academic biologist and then working all over the world. So I'm very very lucky I get to pursue my passion every day. I love this luck. It's uh, the book opens with a story of about a snake in your face, a super poisonous snake. <laughs> and almost, I guess you thought it bit you. And then as you described, you, you, you describe yourself as lucky. And I can see why you would say that because of things that have conspired to make you, I guess, have this big break of uh, going down to Panama. And I guess for you, it's just dining on shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, I, man, I am lucky. You know, Josh, and I'm a scientist, right? I'm a wildlife biologist, so I'm not very spiritual, ethereal, whatever you want to call it. That's not really my thing at all. But I'll tell you one thing I do believe in, and that's karma. And I, I believe if you put good out in the world, you get good back. And I think my luck is a lot of that, you know, persistence, patience, and putting good out in the world. And I think the reason, you know, I'm like a cat and I probably used up like five of my nine lives so far, <laughs> so I'm uh I'm still here, and I, I like to think that a lot of that is because I'm on a mission to try and promote wildlife and caring and understanding and conservation. And I think at the end of the day, I get lucky because I'm here to try and help the world and not destroy it. I feel like a lot of listeners are going to have seen a lot of the things. I'm going to jump to something. I don't know if this is maybe a vulnerable or tender spot, or maybe it's something that has really helped you grow. But you talked a lot about growing up in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And you went back again later in life to see your own home. And I, don't, I didn't plan on asking you about this, but you wrote about it in the book yeah. about seeing where you grew up and it had transformed. And it, it was like, I imagine that was a difficult experience. Can you walk us through that? Is, if you don't mind, it's maybe not the, the main thing people come to you for. It's like, what about the sharks? No, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. Yeah. So to give context to that, to your listeners who haven't read the book, I grew up in Zimbabwe, right? On a beautiful farm, 200 acres in an idyllic country and had an idyllic childhood. And during the late 1990s, early 2000s, the Robert Mugabe, who was the dictator president at the time, had a big uprising campaign called land reform, where supposedly, you know, war veterans could go and take land from people as they wished, more or less. 
And unfortunately, my family fell victim to that. So we were uprooted within 24 hours and fled the country, as I write about in the book. Now, when I left Zimbabwe, I was 14 years old. I was full of piss and vinegar, you know, as a 14-year-old young boy would be. Uh, and Africa, Africa really does make hard men. And I was on my way to being one. You know, you, you grow up in a tough environment and you grow up to be a tough man. And I was very much on my way to being one. And so I wanted to fight for what I had and fight for what I believed in and fight for what was right. And I still do that in this field of conservation. But at that time, as a 14-year-old testosterone-fueled nightmare, I wanted to fight for my house and my land. And I didn't want to leave. I dug my heels in and I was ready to go to battle. And I got smacked across the face by my mother. <laughs> she said, get in the car and you're not staying here and fighting for anything. And thank God she did, because I undeniably would have wound up dead, as many of our neighbors did. And that was in 2002. In 2018, I believe it was, I'd actually been back to Zimbabwe prior to that. But in 2018, I went back and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to my home, not just to the country, but to my actual physical home, which was this beautiful, idyllic farm, as I mentioned. And we drove up down, you know, I still had a perfect print in my memory as to how to get there as I do today. I know what roads to turn down and all of that rolled up and our, our stunning, you know, gate, the entrance to the farm, lots of big farms have big gates, right? And ours wasn't big, but it was a nice gate, was lying on its side with grass overgrowing it. And we drove in through the gate and went up the road and the road was nothing but potholes. And all of the big masasa trees and mapani trees that I'd grown up with, which are the wild vegetation in the area, were gone. It was just clear cut. And as I drove up to the house, a shell of my former home appeared. You know, the memory of this beautiful whitewashed home up on the granite copy, which is a granite hilltop. What came into view was a, was a gray building with smashed windows with dead vines all over it and smoke coming out of one of the windows because there must have been a fire on the hardwood floor. And just, a, you know, my memory of such a wonderful place was as shattered and ruined as the house. And it was very hard for me. I actually covered that, believe it or not. We had to do it very, very secretly with one of my cameramen uh, on the Extinct or Alive show that I do for Animal Planet on the Zimbabwe Cape Lion episode. And it was very hard for me. It was very emotional. You know, my cameramen are very respectful. They're not used to seeing me well, so upset, really. They're used to seeing me very excited when we have make major discoveries. And, um, you know, they were respectful enough to kind of put the cameras down when they needed to. And they're my closest friends, so I would expect them to do this. But it was, uh, you know, I don't regret anything. Going back, as hard as it was for me to see my former beautiful home all smashed and destroyed and squatters living in it and trees clear cut and goats pissing and, and crapping all over the place and everything else that it had turned into, it was also a wonderful opportunity for me to let go of something that I had held on to my entire life. Like even as a 20, 31 year old, 29 year old, whatever I was when I went back there, in the back of my mind, I still had this idea that maybe one day I'd go buy the property or fight back for fight for what was mine and raise my children there and have allow them to have a childhood that was similar to the childhood I had. And the truth is that childhood doesn't exist any longer. It's not there. You know, well, even if I some by some miracle got the property back, it's all gone. There's no neighbors. There's no polo club, which is where we used to all meet on the weekends. There's no rugby teams. There's no good schools. Like it's all gone. That childhood's completely erased. So it was a, it was, it was a bit of closure that I absolutely needed. And what was it like for the being there with the, your crew? I guess you were, you're close to them now than you were then, but you were probably very close. And there must be some, I mean, you've had life threatening situations with them. 
Was it difficult to be in front of them or was it more comfortable than it would have been otherwise? I'm kind of curious because your book really praises, well, I, you take to task some of them, the, the, the ones who wish they were doing a video, <laughs> but then the ones that you really care about, it seems like, sounds like a very tight relationship, but you mostly just praise. I'm kind of curious. No, the guys who went with me are Mitchell and Johnny, who are two, I mean, I'm the best man at Mitchell's wedding at the end of this year. And Johnny slept on my floor. You know, I met Johnny when he was 21 years old, three weeks out of college, and he worked for me for a weekend for a free used wetsuit. So they're two of my closest friends in the world. And I have the luxury and pleasure of being able to travel with them. And more so than just being two of my closest friends, they're two incredibly skilled, amazing, talented, resilient, diverse guys. And they were incredibly supportive. You know, they came with me and they put the, you know, they put their hand on my shoulder. They knew when to be quiet and when to, when to be supportive. And uh, I'm sure that moment made us closer, but the reality is they were very close to begin with. And uh, I think, you know, it was, (laughs) I I never planned on sharing it with anyone, but sharing it with those guys was about as good as you could get. Is there a metaphor here between what you described happened to your house and what's happening to the earth? Uh, the, what happened to my house, what happened to the country of Zimbabwe, what's happening to the earth in a whole, um, all of it, man. I mean, we as a species, human beings are quite frankly, a bit of a plague on the planet, you know, where the, where our necessity for resources has just decimated the environment and, and the wildlife and the, the everything really. And it's, you know, but I don't, in saying all of that, Josh, I don't believe in ecophobia. I don't support it. I don't stand for it. I'm never going to sit here and tell you the world is over or the life is over. The world is ending. Global warming, it's too late. I don't believe in any of that. It's not too late. We are an incredibly intelligent, resilient creature, the human being, and we have the ability to fix what we have destroyed tenfold without any question in my mind. And so when I say all this, Yes, there's a metaphor between watching something that I had as a kid get destroyed and how many different habitats and environments I've seen get decimated, but it's not too late. You know, it might be too late for my home and it might be too late for that part of Zimbabwe. It is certainly not too late for the planet. So I do not believe in promoting, you know, the whole destruction and and the end kind of message. Yeah. If it's okay with you, I'm going to read a passage from the epilogue of your book, not giving away any endings here. Yeah. And uh, it says, I'm not saying that once you finish reading this book, you'll need to devote your entire life to conservation and animal rights activism. But if you would understand and help others understand that it is a whole lot harder to walk up to a deer quietly, sit down, and take a beautiful photograph of it with a camera than it is to kill it from a quarter mile away, then that would continue a necessary shift in perception. We need to change our consumption and destructive mindset. And if every person in the world doesn't think that chest-thumping, nature-conquering dude is cool anymore, that's referring to something earlier, but instead thinks that living in harmony with nature and appreciating it, respecting it, and valuing it is beautiful and essential to our very existence, then I think massive change is possible. And you're not the th- chest thumper, but you've done some amazing things. <laughs> Everyone knows you that way, I, I believe, of the places you've gone, the things you've done, the, the alligators. And I don't know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile, although I've heard you <laughs> describing it to others. And it's really great to see like someone like they trap one and you just jump on top of it. And you're like, like as if you're just riding a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what they say? Once you ride a bicycle, you never forget. So I guess that's yeah, once you jump on a crocodile. You... Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think I understand where the, this line of questioning was going. 
Look, I mean, I'm a pretty alpha guy. Like by name, I, I, you know, I was a captain of my rugby team and I like, I, I lead my team in the field, but I don't think that I'm a chest thumper, so to speak, in the sense of like the conquering nature. Nature cannot be conquered. And anybody that thinks that it can is, is delusional, you know? And I watch these, these survivalists on certain TV shows and going, I conquered nature. And they're literally thumping their chest and screaming at the top of their lungs. And it's, it's honestly, it's laughable because nature is much stronger than anything that any of us could ever possibly do. And I also don't understand why you would want to conquer nature. I don't understand the mentality behind that. You know, why not work with nature? You'll accomplish so much more. And that's a philosophy that I applied to basically everything in my life. I want to work with people and support them and see, see conservation and wildlife science grow and spread and develop. I don't want to be chest thumping, so to speak, over anybody or anything or any place. It sounds to me like there's something, my, my PhD is in physics and there is a beauty of nature. A lot of people associate physics with like um, uh, lab coats and tuning high-tech equipment. For sure they do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely that. I mean, I helped build a satellite, but it was always in the service of, of an aesthetic beauty of nature that is just ineffable. And the more that I learned, the more there was to learn and the more beauty that I found. And right. for our business, it's much more about equations than going out in the field. But I don't know, maybe you know that they, they do these studies where they put uh, mathematicians and scientists in, in FMRI machines. I think that's what they call Anyway, brain scan machines. And they show them an equation. And the, the part that lights up when you see a beautiful painting lights up. Right. And that beauty is there. And I feel like that was throughout your book. Like, it, you're not jumping. I mean, sure, I may see you jumping on top of an alligator, but it's... Um, What's the word? Stewardship or appreciation? It's with purpose. Yeah. It's with purpose. You know, it's not doing it uh, to showboat. It's doing it for, you know, I, I'm not just going to catch a crocodile to catch a crocodile, which I think a lot of a lot of what you used to see in TV and perhaps still do today is just that. Like, you know, we're doing we're there to do things for a reason. Now, as it's turned out, you've ended up becoming a celebrity. I mean, it's... Uh, I know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, there's two things that you didn't talk about as much. I mean, becoming a celebrity, there, you did talk about times when you're like, I'm just forced, and here I am in this crazy moment. I wouldn't have expected this. And you're making big decisions of what to do with drones in Myanmar. And, and was it Myanmar? I think you were still in Myanmar at that point. It and was, it was Myanmar, yeah. So that's like a major decision you made on the spur of the moment. And yeah. hanging out with Joe Rogan, and you went from really grunt work out in the desert, man, because the world is so full of all these, uh, what, internet celebrities who like try so hard to become celebrities. I never wanted to be a celebrity, Josh. And I still don't really think of myself as one. And I know that I'm becoming more and more recognizable, but it's, you know, to me, the word celebrity sort of has a negative connotation to it. And at the end of the day, I'm still just forest, you know, I'm still just a kind of a nerdy wildlife biologist who's just put his nose to the ground and following his passion. So the, the best part about my quote unquote celebrity value is the fact that I'm able to use it to influence so much good. You know, like I, I wish that I was as famous as Kim Kardashian, not because I want to sit in a beauty salon and text while someone films me, but because if I was as famous as Kim Kardashian, instead of reaching tens of millions, I could reach hundreds of millions, if not billions of people with the message of conservation. And that's, that's the only reason that it interests me. And, and you know, when I'm trogging through the hellhole of, of, say, Western Madagascar in the middle of a heat stroke with amoebic dysentery and fluids coming out all ends, <laughs> the things that keep me going are getting home from that and 
having 2000 message requests pending on my social media of people that, that are saying things like, Oh, I just watched your show and now I've changed my major in college or, Hey, I'm volunteering at a wildlife shelter or thank you so much. You know, now I'm going to study biology and the list goes on and on and on. And the, just knowing that I'm able to inspire people to care about wildlife and the planet makes like the celebrity value means nothing to me, but the value of being able to reach that many people and, and influence them to care more because they, they get to do it through my passion or they at least get alerted to it through my passion. That's a phenomenal feeling. And that's what I hope the book has brought to the table, you know, is reading this and going, wow, like, look at all these interesting things that you can do in wildlife and conservation. Yeah, I see the, the contrast, I think, between celebrity, which implies the opposite, maybe not exactly the opposite of, of what you exude is a genuineness and an authenticity that I'm not sure if, how often the Kardashians are accused of that. <laughs> I mean, they're authentic <laughs> to something. I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> it would be amazing to be able to enlist and to, to get support of, I don't know them. I don't really know about them. I mean, I know of them, the Kardashians, right. but if they, if they really got on board with stewardship and, and honoring nature, that'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, each to their own. Right. But I think that the more you can use that spread and reach for something important, the better. And for me, that's something important is conservation. And although my, my spread and reach is, you know, it, it, it's, good. You know, it's not as big as, as real celebrities, but I'm just happy that it's imp impacting people. At the end of the way I feel, Josh, is at the end of the day, if one person becomes a wildlife scientist because of all the TV and books and social media and suffering and expeditions, if one person decides to change their life course because of something they saw me do the way I sort of did watching Steve Irwin as a kid, then, uh, you know, it, it's totally worth it to me. Yeah, this podcast was originally called Leadership in the Environment. And one of my strategies is to bring in people who are very well known and get them on board to have them share an experience so that people, I think one of the big things that will get people to change is, you know, I don't think giving people facts and figures will. I no, think definitely not. I think one of the major things is people will change when, don't hold me to the numbers exactly here, but like when roughly five people around you change, you'll probably start changing too. Absolutely. The number one predictor of people installing solar on their homes is how many of their neighbors have it, not how much money right. you're going to save. And so the bigger you get, that's all the people have heard of you. You're 20% of the way that right. you bring them 20% of the way there. And now if, right. if they know me, that 40%. Right. No, exactly. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And, and overall, I'm just happy that, you know, people care about what we do. I think that's amazing. Now, there's a transformation that I see happening in you that I think you probably won't be, you'll probably humble, you'll be humble about it because you, you seem that way. But uh, you become a leader, a leader of teams. It sounds like a lot of, of personal leadership as well. Certainly. Yeah. I, I think that that's something that it was, goes back to what I was saying earlier about sort of Africa raises hard people. And I, I think, you know, I grew up with sort of the burden of leadership on my on my shoulders, whether I wanted it or not. And I don't know if that's nature or nurture, but I do, you know, I'm a leader of my team in the field. I'm a leader of the sports teams that I'm affiliated with uh, as far as it being a coach. I'm a leader in, the, in this field of conservation. And it's not, again, it's, it's just like the celebrity status, I suppose. It's not something that I ever anticipated. It's not something I ever strived for, but it just sort of fell into place. And, and I don't have a problem with it, you know, because I'm making these decisions that ultimately lead to what people get to see and experience and read about. And so it's okay to be the leader of that team. And if I, if I screw up, which I do plenty, 
I'm very willing to admit that, you know, and I've done it plenty of times and I've done it on TV and I've done it in the book. And I, I'm very happy to say when I do or do not make a mistake. And I think that that's, that's critical in leadership, you know, is to, to understand that, that the, that the leader is not perfect and not going to be flawless, but rather going to make mistakes and have problems. It sounds like there's an inner journey that's as, as significant as the, as the external journey as well. Yes, I think so. I mean, like I said, I'm from a sciences background, so it's not something that I think about. But Mm -hmm. truthfully, yes, I do think that there is an inner journey that is also significant. You know, I I think I say this at the end of the book. I'm just getting started. You know, this is just the beginning. This isn't anywhere near the end. I, I, I feel like there's a long way to go still. Now, I have to indulge in asking about at least one of the adventures. I'm sure you've told the story so many times you're sick of it. But, and I mean, there's a lot of them with the animals. And what was the, there's a cave, Hang Sung Dong? Hang Song Dun. Hang Song Dun. And that you could fly a 747 through. Can you walk us through, people have only found it a couple of years ago, uh, maybe a couple of decades ago. And of all the things, I don't know, I, all of them sounded in, in, incredibly intriguing, but there's something about that space and the life in it. And I think you went only four miles, but I think it must've been several days. So six miles in about four days, yeah. Okay. And, and then it reaches this inner sanctum, which mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was wondering, can people reach that from another area or is that only reachable through the cave? And what was it like being in that space? So all great questions. Hang Song Dun was absolutely incredible. It's the largest cave system in the world. More people have summited Everest than have been into this cave. And, you know, if you think about the fact that this cave, it's, again, the largest cave system in the world. And it was only discovered in, I think, 97, 98, something like that. I can't remember the exact year, but very recently. And that discovery was made by a Vietnamese hunter who believed that he had found the opening to this exact cage 12 years prior and had spent that amount of time looking for it. So that just, to give you the scope of that, the Empire State Building can stand up inside of this cave, right? So if you think about that and you think about how hard it was for native Vietnamese people to find this cave in the Annamite mountain range, it just goes to show you how incredibly remote, rugged, and diverse this piece of the world is. And so to answer your second question about can you access it from elsewhere, I mean, technically, I suppose if you had a helicopter and you knew the GPS coordinates and you could rappel down, sure, anything's possible, but there is absolutely no way to get into this cave from, you know, any other way than going through the entrance and out the exit or vice versa. And it is it is hectic. It's not an easy climb and it's not an easy trek. And so, yeah, we had an amazing experience, you know, multiple days without seeing any light. Trying to understand the scope of a cave that can fit the Empire State Building inside of it is beyond anything that we were capable of putting on television as hard as we tried, beyond anything I'm capable of articulating here on this podcast. I mean, it is unbelievable. To, it's like being in outer, outer space, you know, this, this massive void of blackness with these insane stalactites and stalagmites that reach up to 150 stories into the sky. And I, I, but there is no sky because there's a cave roof overhead. And and looking up and seeing what looks like stars in the night that are actually glowworms crawling on the on the cave roof that's a mile overhead. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, to and then the light that does come in in the areas where the cave has collapsed with this brilliant, brilliant beaming light rays that create life as soon as as soon as 
as soon as sunlight is able to touch any part of this cave, it creates immense growth and life. And the photosynthesis that takes place in these areas is unbelievable because you have this, 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 un, this unimaginable green green against this harsh black and gray. And it's just, I mean, it, <laughs> words just don't do it justice, Josh. It's just such an unbelievable experience to walk through a cave like that. And then after walking for four days through it, then you reach this inner sanctum thing mm -hmm. and you were looking for a mammal. Correct. And, and so you find leeches and you're like, <laughs> I, it's not often people like, oh, great, leeches. Right. Uh, but that means that there's mammals around. And Correct. so life has gone through this tunnel. I mean, it may have come through some other ways, but it, I, I'm just amazed at how life, it's just wonderful to hear how life perseveres. I love hearing about you know, something that doesn't live on oxygen at the bottom, living off the, the vents at the bottom of the ocean and which possibly, oh, I, actually, I've, I keep saying this, but maybe you could independently verify. Is it possible that it's life that came from a different source than us? In the cave, I don't believe that it is. Oh, not, not the cave, but in the bottom of the ocean. Oh, certainly. Yes. No, the- The, the, the sulfur uh, stuff. Yes. The, the currently most- uh, widely accepted theory on life in the deep sea thermal vents is that it was not originated from uh, photosynthetic life, you know, and until 1986 or whatever, when it was, when we found that life on thermal vents, we didn't even, our, our understanding of life was that it was all directly related to photosynthesis, that we couldn't live without sunlight. And so now we know without doubt that we can, you know, which opens up all kinds of ideas and theories when it comes to life in, uh, in outer space. So, yeah. And with regards to Hang Song Doon and the cave and life in there, I mean, you know, it's not the most bioabundant place in the world, of course, you know, it's a big giant cave, but huge, incredible whip scorpions, the size of basketballs and blind fish that have devolved their eyes and frogs that have lost their eyesight and snails that have never been seen before. Just incredible species that, uh, you know, although not extremely diverse, are very unique and endemic to these cave systems that we were able to find. And my theory and, and hope and desire was that if we trekked through this cave for long enough and we got into the forested system that, as I said, was impenetrable any other way, perhaps we'd get a glimpse of sort of primordial Annamite mountain range, you know, primordial Vietnamese forest before, because one of the things that's happened in Vietnam a lot is empty forest syndrome, where people have come in and just wiped out everything. And so you have these beautiful forests and you're like, wow, it looks amazing, but you don't even hear a cricket chirping because it's been so over harvested. And what I was hoping is that we'd get a glimpse into, like I say, pre-human Vietnamese mountain range forest. And we didn't find the sallow. We did find leeches, which indicated mammals. And we got their blood tested to see if we could find the DNA of the animal we were looking for. So, and again, we weren't successful. And I'm someone who hunts extinct animals, so we're not always going to be successful. But it was, uh, it was a fantastic expedition nonetheless. Uh, I start smiling when you say you don't always succeed. And then it, it's, there was one trip where you got three in, in like one trip. And that was just, uh, and it's funny. It's like, the one one paragraph begins, and it's like, my wife joined us, which was fortuitous. And I was like, that's foreshadowing. I can't wait to hear what, <laughs> what that one was. And then that, that I got to see. It's really great to see it. If people haven't seen the show, I recommend reading the book first. But I can see why reading the show is, is like more easily accessible. But uh, does it, it just gives us background that I, I don't think that, yeah, as you said, the shows are the highlight reels. Yeah, that's all they are. They're just little highlight reels. And if you want a real in-depth understanding of what we do, how we do it, where we go behind the scenes, that's what the book is. You know, that plus my journey, my personal journey over uh, 
you know, over just a 44 minutes of TV of, of kind of a, a formulated plan. So I want to ask you, it's kind of infuses everything, but when you act on in stewardship, when you act to, to protect the environment, to conserve, what's motivating you? I, not just like, what are the goals to save these things or to motivate people to save things that they, we thought were extinct? What are the emotions driving you, if, if you don't mind sharing? No, it's a good question. I, I've never really thought about it. I almost feel like what's wrong with people that aren't doing it? You know, like, I don't think my brain is wired to answer that question of why, but rather ask the question to those who aren't of why not. And I, I can't, in some sense, I really just cannot relate to people that aren't doing it. You know, like, I, I just feel like it's so important. A perfect example of that, Josh, is COVID-19, right? The reason you and I are sitting in our living rooms having this conversation instead of sitting down in a studio together is because of the COVID virus, right? The reason the COVID virus is here is directly related to our mistreatment of wildlife, you know? And, and the fact that everybody doesn't care about that and the fact that everybody isn't like, wow, we need to fix this before something much worse than COVID comes along and we're in a much worse situation than just being isolated in our living rooms waiting for a vaccine is beyond comprehension to me. I, I, I can't understand why more people aren't more concerned and more outraged and working harder towards fixing things. So yeah, I mean, I guess that doesn't really answer your question directly, but I just think, I don't know, I like helping people. I like helping things. I like helping animals. I like helping environments. I just think it's what we're supposed to do in this world. And so, yeah, I, I'm sorry, that's a very, very wishy-washy response, but I just feel like it's what we're, what I'm here to do. Well, it I wouldn't call it wishy-washy. I mean, it, it sounds like it sounds so natural. It, it feels to me like what you're saying is it, it's a part of, to you, so natural. It's a part of being human. It, it's Absolutely. I'm hearing that it feels like a sense of duty or a sense of service, but so natural that it's, it's impossible to imagine not having that. Like it's not, it's different than breathing because. I think a good, and I'm just making this up on the spot, but like, Josh, when you get a Christmas present, even if you love that present, it's a good feeling, right? It's like, oh, that's fun. I got a nice present. But when you give a present and you see that it's something that someone is just so excited to have received and something they really wanted, that's like a way better feeling than getting that present. At least it is for me. And I think that like, I don't know if that's really directly related to conservation, but for me, it's just like, I, I'd much rather on a selfish level, have that feeling of helping people understand and realize the necessity to save the planet than I would consume from it. So I'm hearing that it's, it's something that's, um... It feels great. I, I wasn't sure if you're going to say to give to people, but to give to nature. But I, I, I suspect both of both. giving of that. It, yeah, I, I think I know that feeling of of I wonder if they're going to like it, and it's like absolutely what they perfect for them. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they love it. Yeah, but they didn't exactly. even know how much they wanted it. Right. Exactly. Almost like like the celebrity stuff doesn't quite fit because it's like you're doing what you love. It's. And, and like I was saying before, I don't think I'm a celebrity. I'm just a biologist, you know, and, and not even a very good one. Just someone, just one who's very, very passionate and motivated. So, you know, I don't, I don't think of it in that regard. But yeah, I mean, to the, to the original point, I just think it's, it's so important. Like the world is at a critical point. It's everything. I mean, literally like the COVID-19 vaccine, the COVID-19 virus, you know, that I just spoke about and how that's related everything is tied together in this world. And like, how much more of this crap are we going to sit through? You know, how much more, how many more pandemics, how much more deforestation, acidic rain, global warming, all this stuff. And I don't want to be negative. Like I said, I don't believe in ecophobia, but like, 
why wouldn't you want to help? Especially when it's not, it doesn't take away from what you're doing anyway. You know, instead of eating Oreos because they have palm oil in them, which leads to deforestation, which leads to monoculture, which leads to viruses, go and get the freaking Trader Joe's knockoffs, you know, go get the Jozos, which don't have palm oil in them. Like it makes no difference to my life. I shop at both stores and it's just as easy to buy the, the Jozos as it is to buy the Oreos. And I love cookies, you know? So it's like, why? I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to help. And I think that when education, like what I do with regards to educating people on matters like that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a minor thing for me to do to contribute. And that those little contributions add up to a big sum of change. I think there's something beyond the little contributions, because I think that you're describing something that's a joy. I think this is something I say all the time. People, for whatever reason, and I think a lot of the messaging leads people to feel this way, is that they feel like acting on their environmental values is a deprivation. It'll bring, it's sacrifice, it's a chore, it's a burden. And when it may look that way, but when you actually do it, it completely switches from something you have to do to something you get to do. It's joy, it's freedom, it's fun, it's connection. 100%. Not only that, but Josh, I mean, everybody, everybody listening to this, everybody that's ever grown up on planet Earth has saved something, right? Whether it's a mouse from a gutter or a frog from a, from a drain pipe or a uh, you know, whatever, a pigeon with a broken wing. I'm sure you've saved something, you know? Do you remember that feeling of when you let that thing go and it flew back into the air or it scurried off into the field? Like, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to know that you fixed that. And I, by the way, I've been on both sides of the coin. I've, I've killed stuff too, you know? I go out spearfishing quite a lot and I don't enjoy the killing one bit. And that, that feeling of saving and helping is so like emotional and, and powerful and amazing. Like, why wouldn't we want to feel like that all the time? It's like a drug, like get hooked on, get hooked <laughs> on the environment, you know, like, why not? It's like a drug that's worth taking. So yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I've never, these are very deep questions that I've never really thought about before. I usually just plot along like a scientist, you know, doing my thing, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful feeling to be involved in it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. This is actually my favorite part of the podcast, is asking people that question, because no one, not one person has answered it the same, but sure. everyone has some magnitude like that of how deeply valuable nature is to them, and how fragile, well, it, both, both resilient and fragile it is. That's what I was talking about earlier. So then after I ask people that, I ask, I invite you, this is at your option because you don't have to, but based on those feelings, based on what you're talking about, based on, on that, that euphoria that, that, you know, get hooked on this, <laughs> I invite you at your option to think of something to do to act on those feelings with three constraints. You're not, something you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. So, cause a lot of people are like, oh, I'll get someone else to do it. I'll tell my kids to do it or something like that. And something with a measurable effect. Cause a lot of people come back with like, oh, I'll read a book or watch a movie. Right. Uh, which by all means, you know, read the book, watch the movie, but then to act on it. And, but what I'm not saying is you have to fix the world. I'm not saying what's the biggest or most important thing to do, because I think right. that judgment of, is it big enough? Stops a lot of people from starting. 
Whereas if it's just from intrinsic feeling, then people often find something and you know, big, small is not as important as euphoric, yeah. intrinsic. Hmm. Man, that's tough. And if you come up with something, then I'd invite you back a second time to share how it went. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd have to think on it, to be honest. I mean, I, you can ask any of my crew members, my wife, anybody, I'm an act first, think about it later kind of guy. So when I mm-hmm. see the opportunity, you know, I usually just pounce on it literally and physically. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing for people to challenge themselves to think of, you know, at first description, it's like, I wish that I could make, like, I wish I could make better decisions on a daily basis. You know, like I live pretty far from town. It's like 40 minutes from where at my house to town. I wish I could ride my bike there more. You know, some days I drive to town three times in a day because I forget stuff or I need to go to meetings, but they're split up or whatever, you know? that's a lot of like wasted time in a car and fossil fuels. And I'm not an anti-fossil fuel guy, you know, I'm not a pro one either, but like, I just wish like, why can't I ride my bike more and do stuff like that? You know, little things that I'm not doing where it's like, I sit here and I preach conservation. I talk about this grandiose making change. And then I get in my, in my pickup truck and drive downtown three times in a day, you know? So like, I wish that I could make a little bit more personal, uh, personal changes that could help out a little bit. Well, a lot of times when people, there's usually a going back and forth process because usually people, they start thinking what they are doing and they're kind of stuck because they, most people have found a certain balance. Right. And this often moves the balance a little bit more and they find that they like it. And sure. so when something pops up quickly, oftentimes if they just pick something, you know, I'm not saying forever don't do X. Right. But if you come up with something that you could try once or twice or that you could try it on a limited basis to see how it goes and just share how that went. Absolutely. Because usually my, what, what almost always happens is they come back and they say, okay, I'm just going to do this one little thing. And they come back and like, oh, I really enjoyed it. And I want to do it more, which is not, yeah. that's them, their choice based on right. experience, not me imposing right. it. That's and great. that's what the listeners come back and they're like, now that someone did that, now I, I can do it too. That's what I'm kind of, this is all for the listeners. I'm curious to hear what some of your other guests and what some of your listeners' experiences were with that. Like, what, what are those things and how have they succeeded or failed at it? I'd be very curious to hear about that. Can we come up with one for you first and then I'll share a couple? Because if I, when it's happened that I've said, people have done this and that, and they're like, oh, I'll do that too. And then it's not necessarily Of course, it's theirs. not organic. Yeah. Let's work, let's, work, let's work on one. Let's do it. I like this idea. What are, any suggestions off the bat? Well, because you mentioned right off the bat the driving, if there's a way that you could do something, it could be once, it could be a couple times, it could be a different way of doing it that might be less of what you what made you think of it. I mean, I, I gather that there are times when you probably get in the car, turn it on, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what I'm reading off of you. Totally. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this again? Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's what made me think of it. So is there a way you could do that less? I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, I think I'd have to commit more time to thinking about ways to avoid, say, driving a long way or, or you know, doing multiple trips or something like that. Yeah. So if you usually it helps to make it a smart goal or SMART stands for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time bound. Hmm. Where the key things is really the time bound, like for some time, try it one way. And then if, if it doesn't work, that's fine. I mean, some people come back and like, this exercise didn't work, which right. I'd rather have listeners feel like, oh, this is not a trivial thing because it doesn't always work. Of course. No, I mean, that is science, right? You try something and it might succeed and it might fail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think time balancing, right? Taking my laptop with me so that if I, if, if I have something, 
if I have to go somewhere that I'd have to return to three hours later, maybe I go and work while I'm in that zone instead of go back and forth. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So if, if we made it specific and said that, I don't know, for some period of time, you always brought your laptop with you. And I would guess that at some point you'd find, oh, I don't have to go back this time. That's what I'd love to hear that, how that, that experience goes. That's the, that's the moment of change. Yes. So I think for the next, I mean, the problem is I travel so much, there's no consistency in my schedule. But for the next few months, if I keep my laptop in my car with me, so that anytime I go somewhere, if I can stay there and work where I am, instead of drive back home, back to my home office, and then back out again, that would be a good, uh, good challenge for myself. Okay. So could we schedule, I mean, after we hang up, uh, yeah. uh, after we stop recording, maybe we could schedule, how long do you think it would take uh, a couple months? Yeah. I give me a few months because I'm, I'm gone so often, but yeah, a couple months. Okay. Now my prediction is that you're going to like it more than you expect and things will like, you're going to learn from the experience. Well, I also, I also have an 18 month old at home who runs around outside my office screaming all day. So I probably will like it more than I expect because <laughs> I'll have to somewhere else to work. But no, all jokes aside, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's touch base again um, in August, beginning of August and see how it goes. Okay, cool. And I think that um, what I'm not doing is, is like saying, oh, but it, it, couldn't you do something bigger? That's like the last thing, you know, there's no way I'm going to say something like that because Sure. You know, if you really want someone not to do something, here's a great way to do it. It's like judge them the first time they do it. Uh, totally, totally, totally. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's give it a try. I mean, I do big stuff I've got down. It's the little things that I need to work on. Oh, yeah. So I'll share some of the things that other people have done. Please. A lot of people know that I've picked up litter every day for something like four or five years now. Don't go on my way, but p- people pick up litter, especially if, they li- if they're more, more like a hiking person or a jogging person, they'll combine it with their hiking or jogging. One guest from South Africa, Lorna Davis, uh, she committed to buying no new clothes for a year. Wow. Uh, one guy, Dove Barron, committed to driving his car. Oh, he, he said for one month, he, was, he capped how far he was going to drive. Oh, interesting. And at the end of the month, I asked him how it went. And he liked the experience so much that he said, have me on a third time. I might sell that thing. No kidding. I had him on a third time. He hadn't sold it, but he hadn't driven it either. So in a whole year, it just sat in his, in his driveway. Wow, that's amazing. I got a three-star general retired who's not flying for a while, a Senate candidate who's not flying for, during his campaign. Okay. And let's see, what are some other ones? You know, some people go without coffee cups for a while or they'll say they'll go meatless for a while. One thing that I did that was a nice change for me, Josh, it might just be interesting for you and your listeners, and not everybody has the luxury of doing this, but I, I went for nearly three years without eating a single protein that I didn't harvest myself. So it was all sustainable protein. I was just ate a lot of fish, to be quite honest, because I free dive and spearfish and fish a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I broke that because I missed red meat so much. But yeah, I went for nearly three years without eating a single protein that wasn't harvested by myself. Mm-hmm. And that makes a huge difference because it's sustainably harvested, you know, and it's it was a great experience because it compelled me. Like I'd wake up lazy on a Sunday morning, you know, after having a long week or whatever, I'd be like, I got to go fish. You know, I got to go, I got to get out there. I got to dive. I got to do something because otherwise I've got no meat this week. So it kept me, kept me motivated for a while as well, which was kind of a side effect that I wasn't anticipating. Yeah. This is, this is what this podcast is about is there's a lot of people like Josh, give them quick instruction on like how to do this, how to do that. I'm like, there's a lot of stuff out there that does that. Although not like my refrigerator has been unplugged for six and a half months now uh, as just to try, like I, I saw this um, article about how Vietnam, uh, other places, but Vietnam in particular, they tend to ferment more than yeah. use refrigerators. And I was like, yeah. 
then I read another article that talks about how you know, solar and wind are intermittent. And so if, so we have these like peaker plants and nuclear that keep things going when there's no sun or, or wind, or we could be more resilient. Right. And if we or could handle. Exactly. Yeah. And go so ahead. I was like, well, can I be more resilient? And so I unplugged it. And, and like the longer I go, the, the more skills I develop. Sure. In, so my electric bill last month was $1.40. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. But you see, you have an open-mindedness for that, Josh, that a lot of people don't have. And it's one of the things that I talk about when I do public speaking a lot, which is overcoming the fear of not opening your mind, right? Like if you tell someone, hey, unplug your refrigerator and learn to ferment things, their instinct is fear. They're like, oh, I don't want to. I would never. If you said that to me, I wouldn't have done it either until. Yeah, I agree. Right. And I completely agree. But if you're willing to approach that from an open-minded perspective and go, wow, that'll actually be really fun, there's no danger. You know, you can always plug your fridge back in or go get a burger at McDonald's if you have to, you know, but just try it. And you and people will will not have that knee-jerk fear reaction of, oh, I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. That's not fun. That's scary. And be open-minded about trying things. That leads to a lot more exciting, interesting, and intimate experiences that people then, you know, latch onto. Like I remember the first time I went mushroom hunting, right? Because I, I forage a lot. I pick a lot of my own mushrooms and stuff. And I was with two buddies and they've been talking about it for years. And on paper, it was like, wait, you just walk around the woods and pick up mushrooms. That doesn't sound fun. Like, I don't like the idea of that. Like I love hiking. I love fishing. I love diving. I love obviously being in the outdoors, but just picking up mushrooms off the forest floor. That doesn't sound like fun. Right. And I did it. And it's like the most fun. Uh, I like, I think I love it more than spearfishing. I absolutely love mushroom hunting. I mean, it's adult Easter egg hunting, but on paper, it didn't sound fun. And, I, and even me, who's very open minded to outdoor activities, was relatively closed minded to it for a while. And as soon as I was like, all right, fine, let's try it, I found this whole thing that I'm now unbelievably enthusiastic about pursuing. But it was, but I could have found it two years sooner if I hadn't been so closed minded about it. That's what the question about what the environment means, what the emotions are behind it. That open everyone I've ever spoken to, there's something. Right. And I guarantee when I had the CEO of Exxon on the show or Monsanto or you know, DuPont or whatever, uh-huh. that, that person is going to have an answer that's going to be as meaningful to them as yours was to you. Sure. And when that comes out, that person is going to want to act. You know, and they're going to do something different than bring the laptop with them to someplace, but it's going to come from the same place. And then they're going to start feeling that what you were just describing. And totally. that's, that's my mission is, the, is to change the cultural mindset of America and the world to where it's like, oh, I have to, to, oh, I get to. Right, exactly. Yeah, having the, having the honor to do it. And we're, we're so lucky, Josh, here in the United States. Like we have the privilege of conservation. You know, conservation, wildlife, understanding, caring about the environment, experiencing it is a luxury. And I don't care what people say about it. It is a luxury. If you're starving and the last rhino walks in front of you, you're going to shoot it and eat it, you know, if you're starving to death. If you, if, you, if you have never had electricity and you're freezing to death and you have the ability to get electricity to stay warm, you're going to get that electricity. That's ba- your basic human survival is going to come over conservation. Here in the United States and many other places around the world, but I'm just speaking to us here at home, we all have that, that luxury of being able to enjoy conservation and wildlife. And once you get to enjoy it and experience it, you begin to care about it. And once you begin to care about it, you want to save it. So we're very, very fortunate to live here and have that luxury that we do have a roof over our head. There's always food to eat, you know, and so on and so forth. 
and we can just go out and enjoy the wild world and learn to be connected to it. Yeah, I'm going to add one thing and tell me if you disagree, but it's, it's a luxury where instead of indulging for yourself, you help others. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And, but I'll also say this, self-indulgence is a big part of it. Like I freaking love going mushroom hunting or free diving. Like I do that for me. Like it's a very selfish thing because I am obsessed with doing it to the point that like I'll abandon my wife and child for a Saturday <laughs> to go mushroom hunting, you know? And, uh, and I do that for me. But at the same time, it's good for the world because there, there's both sides of that. It's self-indulgent, but it's also meaningful on a larger scale. Yeah, I, I forage for berries. There's uh, Juneberry trees around where I live, which Lovely. are incredibly delicious. And there's this mulberry tree in the middle of Central Park. Nice. And it's like, I mean, when I'm picking the mulberries, I feel like I'm standing in snow because so many have fallen on the ground yep. that I'm yep. like sloshing around in them. All it's in the middle of Central Park. It's amazing. And nobody's picking them. Yeah, it's That's crazy. Great. And I'm just like, like yeah. I'd love, it's, it's like, I have one here at my house, mulberry tree. It's fruiting right now. Oh, <laughs> I'll be over in a minute. <laughs> well, I want to wrap up. I, I, let's pick up here next time. Sure. And, and, and I'll also be curious to hear how things go. Uh, but anything to wrap up with anything, any closing words to the listeners before wrapping up? No, my only closing words would just be, you know, a gracious thank you for anybody that's been willing to sit through this hour and any hours of, of media that they've listened to me. Like I was saying, you know, kind of throughout this, my whole goal is just to be, to allow people to understand wildlife and the outdoors and the environment. And if anybody has any questions about that, if they want to reach me, I'm very reachable on social media. I'm always happy to ask questions or sorry, answer questions. I ask plenty of them too. And just, you know, I like to interact with people and, and hear about their experiences with the wild world and the environment. So, you know, just to any, anybody that wants to reach me, please do. Well, first, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.